Welcome to the Bear Hug Experience, where we cozy up to the fire in our digital den and immerse ourselves in the inspiration born from exploring the hidden narratives and inevitable plot twists that shape every compelling startup journey. Join us as we showcase inspirational guests from bold investors with the Midas touch to pioneering entrepreneurs at the helm of today's most thrilling startups. We'll also hear from courageous go-to-market leaders navigating the frontier of emerging tech and the unsung heroes bringing all the people and parts together to form unstoppable dream teams. Here's your host, Craig Ward, founder and managing director of Bear Hug Recruiting. Get ready for an insightful journey. The following is a conversation with Nick Ezzo, VP of Strategic Accounts and Market Development at Auditoria.ai. While Nick boasts an illustrious career as a sales and marketing trailblazer, his true passion lies in being a data-driven demand generation marketer who's committed to enhancing the efficiency of finance and accounting professionals through the power of artificial intelligence and automation. Beyond pioneering a patented marketing technique, Nick excels in nurturing startups during their foundational and growth phases, and is an expert in building world-class teams with strong cultures. In this episode, Nick talks about his unconventional entry point into the world of marketing, his contrarian views on the profession, and shares insights and best practices that will help elevate your own go-to-market efforts. Welcome to the Bear Hug Experience. And now, dear friends, fellow entrepreneurs, investors, and startup enthusiasts, here is Nick Ezzo. All right. Nick Ezzo, how are you? Pretty good. How are you doing, Craig? I'm doing well. Uh, I know you've been doing some traveling. How are you feeling coming into this today? Yeah, feeling pretty energized. You know, I'm, I'm in California today, but I'm, my body is still on East Coast time. So it's, you know, mid-afternoon for me. Um, you know, it's a beautiful sunny day out here in San Jose, California. Can't complain. Well, it's been a long time coming since I've uh, wanted to do this with you, so I'm glad we got to sit down and finally get it recorded. So why don't we start by having you tell our listeners, uh, what are you up to these days? Yeah, yeah. So I nowadays I, I work for, for the last four years almost, uh, since February of 2020, I've been working for an AI firm called Auditoria.ai. And Auditoria, you know, we, we set out on a mission about four years ago to kind of reinvent the, uh, the office of finance and using artificial intelligence, machine learning, now it's called large language models, computer vision, other things. We're, uh, we've created some kind of co-pilot or automated assistant functionality to help finance and accounting people do their jobs better. We have some history with this company. Um, I know the CEO, and I remember having a conversation with him years ago, wondering if uh, you know he'd made the comment, we're probably a bit early for the market. But uh, I think in this last 12 months with everything happening with ChatGPT and yeah. AI in general, um, <laughs> we have we have come full circle. Yeah, he was right. I, I've literally spent the first three or so years um, explaining to people that, hey, we do AI for accounting and finance. And I have to say that more than once, like AI, accounting and finance. You probably don't hear those phrases in the same sentence. Um, and I have to explain what we did. Um, but that did change about a year ago. I want to say November of, of 2022. When ChatGPT burst on the scene, now the conversations are not like, oh, what do you guys do? It's, 
oh, you guys are AI. I know it's coming. Nick, tell me what I need to do to be ready for it. You know, how is this yeah. going to help my job? I'm sure that was a welcome relief to yeah. have start to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it has. And then also our relationship with, with Workday has kind of opened a lot of doors for us you know, in the Workday accounts. Um, and they've embraced AI wholeheartedly and, and us as their, their primary provider of artificial intelligence in, in the finance office is great. Yeah. And, and Nick, you know, you and I have some history together, obviously. And so I know a good bit about you and, and sort of how your role has evolved in this particular company. But going, maybe zooming out a little bit and just thinking about you as a as a leader, I know we can talk more about how your role has evolved over the last couple of years uh, in this particular company, but you have such a unique and colored history. Um, so I'm, I want to go through that here in a minute, but let's just talk at a high level about your superpower. What, what do you feel is the one thing that differentiates you from other people that are in a similar position or a similar role? Well, I think the, the number one thing is that I did not come up through the normal channels of marketing. Um, you know, I, I did not study marketing in college. I, I think I took one marketing class and I'm pretty sure I got like a C plus if I got that. But, um, you know, I have a very, my, my background was actually like more adversarial toward marketing uh, through the first 10 years or so of my career when I was on the implementation side of things. So I think my superpower, Craig, is the fact that, you know, I, 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 it sounds, you know, I maybe contrived to say this, but. I, I think outside the box because, in my opinion, there is no box. You know, the, mm. the, nobody ever told me there was a box to be inside. So I think that's my superpower. So how would you put it into one word if you were to label it, or a couple of words? No box. <laughs> no box. Uh, flexibility. Um, alternative thinking. Um, you know, yeah, just un, unconstrained creativity. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the flip side, often our superpowers can often be our, our, like we can have a shadow side or a, they can become our kryptonite too. And not always, but what would you say on the flip side, the one thing that wears you down or sucks your energy while you're on this path toward, you know, leveraging that superpower? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would love to answer that. And I will answer that. But, you know, I think the inverse of my superpower is not necessarily my kryptonite. You know, mm. the, the inverse of my superpower would be, oh, this guy, all he wants to do is iterate, iterate, be creative, unconstrained, and he doesn't actually execute anything. I've, I've worked really hard to have a bias toward action. So I don't, I don't think that my, my kryptonite is the inverse of my superpower. My kryptonite is actually more of an interpersonal thing, which mm-hmm. is um, bureaucracy, politics, gamesmanship. And I'll, I'll, I, I could give you some examples of that if you want, but... I normally lose at political games in, in organizations because uh, I'm not even aware there's a game being played until I've already lost. So um, <laughs> that is definitely my, my, my kryptonite. Well, I'm going to do something here to introduce you to our listeners that I, I find kind of fun. I do this with uh, all my candidates that I recruit. Uh, pretty sure we did this together four years ago because I've been incorporating this for a long, long time into my recruiting. But I want to have you tell me your life story but I want to have you do it with an artificial time cap. So if you'll look at your clock and yeah. notate the time, yeah. I want you to take me through anything and everything that will come out when you are forced to do so within five minutes. So oh. anything from the moment you were born up until the present day, and we're going to parse that out over time here as we continue <laughs> to talk. But uh, whenever you're ready, let's kick it off with that. All right, I just started my timer. So um, it's running right now. We'll get this done in five minutes. So I come from a very small town um, outside of Cleveland, Ohio, and it's a place where Clevelanders don't even know exist. It's called Valley View, Ohio. 
And, uh, you know, those of us who are from Valley View, population 1500, um, refer to it as the Shire sometimes, if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Uh, it's, a, it's a rural farming community. And basically the people there look like hobbits. Um, my, my dad was a, a diesel mechanic. My mom was an educator. And uh, she taught mediation in the public school system. Um, so I was the first in my family to go to college and that was great. You know, I, uh, did a lot of experimentation, both chemically and academically and, uh, you know, had a great time at Ohio university, go Bobcats. Um, but I, 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 uh, I graduated with a degree in, in information technology. I, I switched my major from radio and TV broadcasting. You know, Craig, I was going to be a, a DJ, if you can believe that. So <laughs> And, a radio and DJ. Radio DJ. And, and yeah. you know, I was at a radio station party one night and I was talking to one of the guys who was graduating. I said, hey, did you find a job? You know, what station are you going to? He goes, oh, I, I only do this radio stuff for fun. I'm actually, um, it, my major is called Management Information Systems or MIS. I was like, what is that? He's like, oh, it's all about computers and telephone systems. And you could actually make as much as $32,000 a year. I'm like, really? Okay, wow, cool. So <laughs> I switched my major. So I graduated with a degree in what's now called IT or information technology, spent about 10 years in the call center space, both as a, a practitioner, as a, I was a call center kid at HBO in Chicago. So home box office had a, a small uh, call center off of the DePaul University campus. And I was their IT kid. I didn't have anybody reporting to me, but all the phones and computer systems definitely reported to me. Um, and then uh, I took a job with their vendor, a company called Aspect Communications. And throughout most of the 90s, I implemented a wide range of call centers in lots of states in the U.S., uh, lots of countries in Europe. So I met my wife uh, at, uh, at Aspect. So, you know, we were both, we kind of both grew up in the call center. Uh, and then, you know, through what I would call a battlefield promotion, I entered the field of marketing. So um, I was working for a startup company back in, I want to say 2001. Um, you know, doing some, you know, kind of technical work and the company had a riff because, you know, or reduction in force. So uh, the CEO said, hey, you know, we need to get rid of a bunch of people. Uh, but Nick, I need you to take over some of the parts of marketing. I'm like, really? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, you know, do you know how to do web design? I said, well, I do my, my band website. He's like, okay, cool. Awesome. You're the webmaster. I'm like, okay. And then uh, he said, well, you know, can you do event management? I said, well, I know how to throw a party. He goes, all right, good enough. You're the events guy. So literally, I found out later on, that's called a battlefield promotion, where I was one of the few remaining people left in marketing, and, and I was like, I was the marketer. And so back in 2001, like 22 years ago, I had to learn it, you know, from the ground up, you know, and, uh, and as I think I mentioned to you before, Craig, I was pretty acrimonious toward marketing. I did not have a high regard for marketing people. And I, in the last 20 years, my, my regard for marketing people hasn't really gone up a whole lot. You know, there's a, some really <laughs> shitty marketers out there. Um, who get by with mediocrity. So um, then, uh, you know, went through a variety of large companies, small companies, managed teams, did the startup thing again. Um, and so that kind of brought me to my journey. So the, the, the one thing I would say, how you can move from a call center uh, background to a marketing background is maybe another one of my secret superpowers. And that is when I was doing call center stuff, and doing call center training and stuff, they measure everything maniacally within the call center. It's like, mm -hmm. um, you know, average handle time, average um, hold time, you know, abandonment rate, and so on and so forth. They measure everything. 
Well, when I got into marketing, it's like, oh, okay. So uh, all the skills I learned in to, to do data analysis, now I just apply to a marketing problem, like open rates, click rates, form fill completion rates, um, MQLs, uh, sales accepted leads. So basically I just applied what I had learned in 10 years of call center stuff. And I applied that to a different problem, which is marketing. And I became a data-driven marketer. So that, Craig, I think was four minutes and 30 seconds of my journey. Okay, well, we gotta, let's talk about your band for 30 seconds, because that's got to be a fun little piece. <laughs> I thought it was, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, b- back in the, I worked in a startup early, early on, like from 1999 to 2000. To 2000 and we, uh, the guys at the company, we had a, a practice space in one of the offices, like in the back room, oh, nice. like it was a storage room. And so, you know, we had a, a drum set and a bass and guitars and keyboards and so on. And, and, and a we website. Was that? And a website. And a website and a website. And we were called the space tourists. Um, oh, you know, no way. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, which was kind of a little bit of a double entendre because back in those days, they were, it was the first time that they were, we were sending like regular human beings who wanted to pay, you know, millions of dollars. So you can go out into space. Um, but then also like our, our, our little icon guy was a, was an alien holding a, a suitcase that had all the different like stickers on his suitcase from all the different planets he's been to. Um, so we were called the space tourists and, and our claim to fame was we would, we had some originals, but we, we did a lot of covers too. And what we were really good at, we were, we were a hard rock band. I wouldn't say we were metal, but we had some grunge elements to us and we would take, uh, you know, light rock songs from the sixties, seventies and eighties and just kind of rock them out to the degree that we felt they needed uh for example the, the song uh, by abba called dancing queen was our uh-huh. signature song which was great oh, no way yeah <laughs> if, you, if you hear like four guys singing like you can dance you can jab and like <laughs> you know it's like it was cool and and you know it was songs that people liked and we just gave it a you know kind of a kick in the ass and uh you know another one was you know, we did the song the gambler by kenny rogers we all put on straw hats and and we we grunged out to the gambler you know which was kind of a fun song in between our uh, sets so and, yeah. what, and what, what what position were you in the band i was the uh, lead singer rhythm guitar player and you know uh. yeah yeah so we had a, a really decent band man and we were very very good and we played all around the uh the santa clara university campus you know a bunch of bars in santa clara that's awesome the space tourists yeah. Yeah. They've been defunct now for like 20 years because, uh, you know, you know, kids come along and I could spend my time sitting in a warehouse with a bunch of dudes practicing music or I could spend time holding my newborn son. And so, you know, all good things must come to an end and, you know, traded family for, you know, the, the, the band for the family. And by the way, it didn't end there because I became the the camp out uh, acoustic guitar guy as my kids. Were oh, growing. nice. Yeah. So. You know, I didn't grunge out, but like I knew a million songs and I'm like the human jukebox. So, you know, just give me a, a song and I'll just figure it out or fake it. Well, I, well, I guess the, the the radio DJ thing, I mean, you've you found a channel and outlet for that because that there's definitely some overlap there. Right. Mm-hmm. In terms of just expression. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel like my, my one addiction is music. You know, if I go uh-huh. even a few hours without listening to music, I feel like I'm like Jones in for something, you know. So, yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, I like to ask people to give our listeners a perspective on, you know, what really shaped the person that you became. Um, so if you think back to early, early years, you know, whether it's parents, family, friends, neighborhood, um, what are, what can you put your finger on as sort of the influential characters that 
helped you kind of make that first early pivot early in your life? And what would you call that first kind of pivot moment in terms of a new perspective or a new shift yeah. um, in direction? Yeah, you know, I've done some reflecting on this. Like, like, well, how did I get out of Valley View, Ohio? And, and so many people, mm-hmm. didn't, you know, like a lot of the people who I grew up with still live there. And, I, you know, nothing against them. I'm not like, you know, look, looking down on them, you know, or like, I don't want to be a snob about it. But like, how did I end up in Silicon Valley and working for high tech startups and AI companies when I was literally born on what looks like a farm, you know? Uh, yeah. So I, I have kind of like given that some reflection. One is that, you know, I come from a fairly large family. I mean, I guess having two brothers and two sisters, you know, there were like seven of us plus the dogs and cats. Um, you know, I was the one uh, kid who didn't give my parents any problems. You know, I was, you know, I was smart enough to not get caught doing the other things that my brothers and sisters got caught doing. Um, but my dad, who I mentioned earlier, was a, it was a diesel mechanic. Uh, he gave me a piece of advice one day that I'll never forget. And he, in fact, he said it more than once. He said, Nick, don't touch tools. And I didn't know what he meant by that uh, at first. And, and like for a lot of years, I think I misconstrued what he was trying to get across. And when he said, Nick, don't touch tools, it didn't mean, hey, you're no good at it. You know, don't pick up that hammer and saw because you wouldn't be good at it. He, I think he was trying to tell me, like, don't do what I do. You know, mm. go do something else. Put your hands on a keyboard or a mouse and, you know, use your brain. Um, and it was much later that I figured out that when he said, don't touch tools, that's what he meant. So was he was he not proud of his career by not wanting you to follow in his footsteps? Oh, he he was proud of his career, but he did it out of necessity. You know, he didn't go to mm. college, you know, and my, right. my two brothers kind of followed in his footsteps directly. Like they both became diesel mechanics right out of school. You know, they went to vocational school. And, right. his, you know, I think his one hope for me is like, don't do that. You know, don't be the third diesel mechanic, you know, uh, or fourth counting him, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Do something else. You, you know, and I was a weird kid, Craig. <laughs> that was the thing. Like, like I, I was the kid who had the 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 the, the Lego town um, on the pool table in the basement that I was like tinkering with until I was like nineteen or twenty years old. You know, like, I was a weird kid. You know, I didn't realize it, but I was a weird kid, man. You know, and but like nobody ever said, "Well, that's stupid. You shouldn't be doing that." You know, if you want to play with Legos when you're like twenty. You can, you know, and like, uh-huh. you know, so I, my mom was a huge supporter of creativity and, you know, you know, the one she, the one thing she wouldn't tolerate was, you know, bigotry, hatred, um, you know, judgmental you know, behavior. So, but she was like, Hey, go find yourself, you know, do what you want to do. So I think, you know, having parents who were very um, cosmopolitan, I guess, for a, you know, a diesel mechanic and a, and a mediator you know mm-hmm. like, they were they're like okay we can get one out you know get this kid out of here <laughs> so you know i credit them for you know sending me to college and help me get started in my life and you know kind of put me so, on the path so you went from ohio to chicago yeah yeah yep um drove out to to you know, chicago illinois um, summer of uh 1991 um interviewed with with hbo i actually got the job um and uh and then a couple of years later then you know went from chicago to, to frankfurt germany and lived there for a couple of years so and was that work related yeah yeah so uh you know the company i, I left hbo and i went with their their phone system vendor a company called aspect i mentioned them earlier and after a couple of years they said hey look we're trying to set up a call center operation in uh, in mm. Germany, any interest in going? And I said, okay, cool. You know, that sounds good. I put my, put my name in, in the hat and then lo and behold, they, they sent me over there for what I thought um, was a year. And my boss, who was a Turkish guy, he's like, 
I said, Hey, I walked into his office one day and I said, Hey man, it's been a great year. Um, you know, I, I, it's been fun. I've thank you for everything. Um, but you know, gotta go. My, my phone bills are like $400 a month and you know, I got a girlfriend back home and, uh, he goes, Oh, Nick, you know, we want you to stay. And you know, your girlfriend also does the same job that you do. You know, I, I said, okay, so we will bring her over here too. And so no way. they literally brought my girlfriend at the time and to now my wife, uh, over to Germany. Um, I supported all the direct customers. She supported all the indirect customers. So companies that were sold through Deutsche Telekom or Siemens, she handled those customers. And we had so much fun. We had a blast. We lived together. We spent every weekend in a different country, you know, Luxembourg, mm -hmm. Belgium, France, Switzerland, you know, went all around Germany. It was an idyllic time. We loved it. Um, and we're so grateful that we had the opportunity to do that uh, back in those days. And so how did, how did you end up being back in San Jose then or the Bay Area? Well, you know, all good things must come to an end, just like with the band, you know, after two years, <laughs> two years in Germany for me and one year for my wife, um, you know, the, the company said, okay, well, you know, the, the project's over. You guys, great job standing up the uh, GmbH in, in, you know, aspect G GmbH in Germany. Um, you know, you got to go someplace and we've got some positions open at headquarters. And I said, okay, cool. So, you know, I took a job in marketing as like a kind of a technical marketer. And my wife took a job in sales. And from that point on, like, you know, I'm sales and she's marketing or other way around. I'm marketing, she's sales, whatever. Until, now, until, the, until the present. Until the present. <laughs> now I'm both sales and marketing. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, and so, so was that when you started, when you said you became a technical marketer, was that after you got back to the Bay Area? Yeah. You doing the web, the web master and the event management type stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I am. Um, I was actually just doing like technical documentation and stuff for the marketing team. And um, I wasn't even doing like full on marketing, but I, they, they didn't know where to put me. So they kind of stuck me in this, in this group. And I, you know, I didn't know anything about marketing and uh, you know, then I left and joined a startup and it was at that startup that, uh, that we had a riff and um, oh, okay. battlefield promotion to, to do, to become a, a, an actual demand gen marketer, which is different than like, People, I don't know if your audience knows this, but there's many different flavors of what people call marketing. Um, mm -hmm. There's product marketing, there's event management, there's analyst relations and press relations. And, um, you know, I do what's called demand generation. That's where how I came up. And that is like driving qualified opportunities in the sales pipeline. That's the one part of marketing. I think the actual work gets done. Um, so I'm proud that like most of my career in marketing has been in, on the demand generation or pipeline generation side of things. Because um, that's where the fun is, and that's where the you get to work with salespeople and customers and so on. So, so you learned this through uh, trial and error. You must have had some mentorship along the way because you didn't study it, right? You kind of yeah. just fell into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I worked for a company back in the two thousands that was a call center based company, and we did speech recognition when speech recognition was very nascent. Mm. And I worked for uh, the founders, and and the founders, you know, one of them was a, a product guy, and one guy was a marketing guy. And so I worked under Steve Pollack, who was, you know, from Claris and Apple and other things. And I learned a lot from Steve. Um, so, yeah, I, I did have really, really good mentors coming up. And, and I, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. And But, you know, on the other hand, um, you know, at that same company, I, I actually earned a patent. So I have a patent for a marketing technique, which I'm sure many people would be surprised to hear that you can actually patent marketing techniques. But um, I do have a uh, a patent to my name called the method for generating sales of a conversational voice response system. You can Google what? That. Yeah. What? <laughs> okay. 
tell me tell me more about why did you why did you choose to patent this? Why did you feel like you you wanted to control this this well, technique? I got to hear the story. Okay, so there's there's a, a you know, so the patent was not my idea. In fact, you know, okay. this, had been, this had been one of the most successful marketing programs I'd ever either come across or developed. I actually developed this one. So the the story, well, the end of the story is the patent attorneys were in the office to patent different IP in our product. And Steve, my boss said, Hey, you should talk to these patent attorneys because I think you might have something with your marketing technique. And, um, and I did, and they wrote it up. And like literally five years later, I was, had moved on to another company and another company and they got something in the mail and said, Hey, congratulations. You're now the patent holder on patent, you know, one, two, three, four, five. And okay, cool. Awesome. I, don't, I never see a dime of money from it because, you know, of course, right. I was working for a company when it was invented, but it's kind of fun, you know, party party story, you know. But if you want, I could tell you, like, what we did and how we came up with the idea, which is actually yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, that's what I want to hear. Okay. So um, the CEO of the company, a guy named Larry Miller, we were all sitting around in a, in a conference room, you know, talking about how do we generate more interest in our product, which was like a conversational system where you can call in and whether it's your bank or your airlines, instead of pressing one or two, you, you say like, you know, book my flight or flight status or, you know, transfer funds or whatever. And, you know, we all sat around uh, in the, in, he said, give, give me your best ideas for how to develop more leads and more opportunities. And so we all sat around the table and we, you know, we gave our best ideas. And then he said, okay, now pretend it's six months later and none of that shit worked. Now what? Uh, and that was it. like, okay, all right, let's think about this a little bit harder. And through some conversations, we came up with this before and after thing where um, I would literally go and call into banks, airlines, you name it, any customer service phone number. And I'd record all the different buttons you had to press and all the menus you had to go through, and all the options you have to listen to. And I'd time it and like, you know, I'd record that whole thing. And then I would work with our recording studio to come up with a mock-up of what it could sound like with conversational um, speech. They're like, hi, thank you for calling you know, Craig's podcast. How can I help you today? Well, I'd like to talk to Craig or I'd like to transfer funds. So I put both of these recordings on a, on a landing page, on a website, before and after, with the statistics <laughs> underneath. And I would send an email to the CEO of the company with the subject line, have you called your customer service number lately? Mm-hmm. And it was very controversial. Uh, it had a, sometimes we had some backlash, you know, because the CEO would uh, she'd send it to whoever reported to her, and that person would send you know kick it down the, the chain of command until it got to some poor person who managed the the phone system, and they were not happy that we made them look bad in front of their <laughs> boss, boss, and boss. But yeah. man, yeah, the first ten of these that we did, the first ten recordings, we got four meetings. That's a forty percent conversion rate. So, you know, you don't see that kind of response rate in a marketing program. But, you know, I would send the email from our CEO to the CEO of, let's say, 21st Century Insurance or Nationwide or State Farm. Um, And I would sit there and I'd send them on Saturday mornings or Sunday mornings. I would get responses back from CEOs to to me. And I was posing as our CEO. wanting to talk about it and, and, and discuss it and have a meeting, you know, and I'd like have to figure out how do I get Larry on this thread so that like, because the CEO of, you know, 21st century insurance wants to talk to him, you know, but uh, yeah, that was the, that was the program. It was super fun. And we did it like, you know, probably, I think I personally ruined the lives of over 200 uh, CEOs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
I ruined the day at least of, of 200 CEOs by making them have to ask their team, why does our phone system sound so horrible? Well, dive, dive more into this definition of demand gen and how it differs from the other components of marketing. Because it sounds like that's an example of generating demand with this sort of before and after technique, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so is, is demand gen, in your mind, a collection of just techniques that tie to some greater strategy? Well, the greater strategy, the ultimate mission is to drive qualified sales, uh, qualified opportunities into the sales pipeline. So right. I'll say that again. Uh, the mission of demand generation is to drive qualified opportunities into the sales pipeline. Full stop. Like that's what we do. And and now, no matter how you do it, whether it's through email or or web based uh, approaches or swag or events or you know you name it, any number of things, intent marketing, um, those mm-hmm. are all components to essentially getting in front of the right person, getting an at bat for your salesperson, and then converting that to a sales accepted opportunity. You know that's the part of marketing where you if you cut off everything else, that's the one thing you need to stay alive. So all these other sort of vanity metrics or other components of marketing that people often tag themselves with, if they're not doing demand generation at their core, uh, a lot of this is just more superficial. Oh yeah, vanity yeah. metrics essentially. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's too harsh to say vanity metrics, but I'll I'll go with it on that. Let's say let's use analyst relationships as an example. That's not something I like to do. It's nothing. Not something I'm particularly good at. Um, and I don't want to pick on, let's say, Gartner or Forrester, but I don't get out of bed in the morning. You know, I don't jump out of bed going, I want to talk to a, a Gartner analyst today. Um, and by the way, if you didn't talk to any Gartner analysts, you know, you might not have the awareness that's out there, but that would be the one area. I mean, they're not buying anything from you. And maybe they're going to like recommend you to people, but even then I'd be suspect. So I don't want to pick on analyst relations, but I'm doing it right now. Um, you know, like That's one area where you could feel like you're doing a lot and actually do nothing versus... Mm-hmm getting an actual prospect to a meeting and have them take a demo through some sort of marketing campaign that is actually moving the ball forward for the company. And so you realized demand gen was, was sort of the the core important part of what you could do as a marketing professional. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And did that drive sort of, was that label, did that follow you through the next couple of stages of your career up until the present? Yeah, because, um, you know, kind of back to my, my background, I, because I didn't study marketing. And for the first 10 years of my career, I was like a, an IT kid and then a, a systems implementer. Um, I worked very closely with salespeople, particularly when I was doing like system implementations, because I like they would send me out on a, on a job. And, um, you know, if the salesperson did their job right, if they were a good salesperson, I'd have a great project. If it was a bad salesperson who didn't set the right expectations, I knew I was in for a tough couple of weeks. But um, I've always enjoyed working with salespeople. And, you know, the fact that this is one part of marketing that the salespeople actually care about, they don't care about analyst relations. They don't care about product marketing necessarily. Um, even event marketing, you know, where it's to the degree that's pipeline generation, they care about it. But like, you know, general like trade show marketing, they don't care about, you know, what was our trade show booth look like? They don't care um, mm-hmm. if it means, hey, this guy is doing something that's going to actively put money in my pocket. Then they set up a note, take notice. And, and like I said, I've worked with them, sales folks, my entire career. My wife's a salesperson. I jokingly say I report to sales both at home and in the office. So, um, <laughs> you know, but I, I, I that's where the, the rubber hits the road. And that's that's what that's what you need to keep a business, uh, keep the lights on, you know. Well, when did you have the first opportunity to actually step into like a leadership role? I mean, it sounds like you've come in and you've established marketing functions before. 
mm-hmm. and built, built teams. When was your first sort of leadership opportunity to actually start hiring people? Yeah, that was probably like um, about 12 years ago or so, um, where I, I would say that I've had, you know, various people report up to me throughout my career, even like, you know, when I was in my 20s. But um, the first time I actually had a team, let's say, where we, I had like 12 people, that was, you know, probably around 2011. And, uh, and it was actually a job I didn't want. Um, <laughs> they, uh, I was interviewing at a company and it came down to me and another guy. Um, the team jokingly referred to us as the fat guy and the long haired guy. Um, I was the <laughs> long haired guy, uh, but they hired the fat guy um, <laughs> who actually became a really good friend of mine. I won't say his name cause I don't want to fat shame him, but um, you know, they, they hired, they hired the other guy and he lasted about 10 months and the company, you know, he left and the company came to me and said, Hey, you know, we didn't hire you, but uh, you know, we, we, we want to hire you now. And, and I talked to him and he goes, absolutely do not step into that role. You will hate it. It's going to be mm. miserable, you know? And, you know, I listened to him and I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take his advice um, seriously, but I'm not going to necessarily take his advice literally. And I did step into that role and, you know, inherited a team of about, you know, 12 people or so grew it a little bit and, uh, you know, had a lot of success. I was, I, I was there for almost four years and, you know, and uh, I have the scars to show for it. And so, from so there, from the point you kind of got into the marketing side of things, you've you've remained in that sort of function ever since. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You, you you played around within the, like the channel roles a bit. You've done some sort of SDR management as well. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. uh, leading up to where you are today. Walk us through, it, it, were there any kind of major pivots in terms of the decisions you made um, as it related to um, the types of products you represented or the types of companies size-wise that you chose? What did you kind of learn through the journey up until the present about what was the proper fit for you? Or did you find that you just like to explore different facets of what you could learn in each of these different environments? Well, I, I've been fairly consistent with the persona that I want to help. Okay, so... Mm. I mentioned like early on that I was, I came up through call centers and call centers was, was my thing. Um, I pivoted from that to, to finance technology or what they call FinTech, which is to help, you know, improve the lives of finance and accounting people. Um, so that is one thing I, I made a conscious decision to do. And for the last three companies, even maybe the last four companies, that's been the persona that I've been working to, to help. And, and why was it a deliberate choice to help that group? What was it about it that was interesting to you? Well, this is the, the story I think I mentioned to you once upon a time about my friend Mike. And, um, you know, Mike is a, 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 fi- a financial planning analysis person at a large publicly traded company. So that's what people call it FP&A. And so he's a, he's a budgeting and planning person, but he, uh, he has to work on the close. And I knew Mike, you know, he and I worked together at Aspect. And we worked together at a startup. And, you know, we've known each other since like 1999 or so, uh, even before that. And then... Um, we would go on vacation with Mike and his family. So Mike and Jill and their two kids would, you know, their kids were about the same age as my kids. And, uh, we'd go up to Lake Tahoe for the 4th of July holiday. And, uh, you know, we'd all take the week off, but what you don't know, or maybe you don't realize is that, um, 4th, 4th of July is, is great for all of us, but it's, it's shitty for finance people. Um, particularly for Mike at, at, um, at his company, because, you know, July 4th is like halfway through the year. They, you know, June 30th is their quarter end. They've got to close the books. They've got to do statutory reporting. They've got to, you know, file this and file that. And, 
you know, while we were all at the beach enjoying life, you know, Mike was back at the, the cabin, you know, closing the books. And so, you know, whenever I think about how do I want to help the, the lives of finance people who end up giving up their nights and weekends and holidays and vacations away from their family, you know, how can I help them get their lives back and get, get that under control? And I think that the way to do that is through automation and through technology. So instead of just having somebody sitting at a, you know, in an empty cottage, you know, trying to close the books, you know, have some background technology that's going to do it for them so that they can spend some time throwing the ball around on the beach with their kids or and throwing the Frisbee, you know, running in the water, you know. So whenever I think about finance people and, and what I'm, what my job is and my mission is, I always go back to thinking about Mike and how can I, how can I, you know, change his trajectory to spend more time with his kids. So when you think about the importance of learning and mastering the pain points, uh, the day-to-day workflow and improving a person's life that's in a particular function in a business, a person that's actually going to use your product, salespeople, I always believe, need to, like the more experience they have relating with and empathizing with the actual buyer that they are going to sell to, um, I believe it's a really important, like the, the, the how technical a particular product is, a salesperson needs to be able to understand something as uh, as technical as what they've sold before. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that relates as much to a marketer as well? Yeah, you have to understand that the wants, needs, fears, desires, and motivations of your end user buyer. And, you know, a finance audience or accounting people are, by definition, risk averse. The CFO mm-hmm. is risk averse. It's, it's her job to pre- to protect the company from adverse um, risks. So, um, you know, so it's super important for any marketer as, you know, principle number one is to understand, you know, as, as much as you can about the buyer and, and what makes them tick. You know, you got to walk a mile in their shoes. You got to sit in their chair. Um, you got to think about, you know, how they approach their job. And by the way, I don't think it's a secret. Finance and accounting people are very much like IT people, you know, the folks I kind of came up with. And that's that, you know, they'll just work longer hours, you know. They don't want kudos. They don't. In fact, if you notice a, a, an accounting person, you, they probably screwed up dramatically. And so they, they go to great lengths not to be noticed. But they also will just throw more bodies at the problem. And they don't they haven't really fully embraced technology. Um, but now I think that's starting to change, you know, with with modern technology, like, you know, large language models and chat GPT and other types of AI. Um, you know, in fact, now it's even got accelerated because now companies that I'm talking to have um, AI governance committees where they want to make sure that their whatever technology they implement, it's going to be it's going to be done in an ethical and you know sustainable way. Well, let's talk about the solution that you're promoting today and and why it matters and how how you see it as being different and on the forefront of uh, helping these finance professionals. Is it, is it the type of thing that's going to threaten them with their job or is it going to be an enhancement to their job? How is it perceived? Yeah. Uh, excellent question. Um, I try to position it as a, as an assistant or a co-pilot or a helper. And sometimes when I'm on demos and I, I will literally speak to the people who are on the call that I know are doing the job and I'll say, you know, I'd like to speak to, to, to Bill and Mary and, and, and Josh, I know you guys are doing this work today. Um, but, but I'm not here to replace you. I'm here to help you. And, you know, we can take some of these things off your plate and allow you to do the things that you don't get a chance to do. You know, nobody went to accounting school to, to respond to emails uh, from vendors asking for payment statuses. But luckily, somebody created a solution that does that automatically using AI. 
And now you can remove that as something you care about and go do something that's more rewarding, enriching, providing better business value for the, the company and take it from there. So is, is this is taking lower level tasks that are repetitive. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And yeah. through the use of technology that wasn't available in years past, like we're just at the point where the large language models are the engine behind this automation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you think about like home assistants or even the phone that you use, whether it's you know, an Android device or an iOS device, you know, we have the ability to talk to our devices. Um, Even in your car, you can talk to your devices and it quote unquote understands what you mean. Um, That technology didn't exist 10 years ago, or if it did, it was very rudimentary. Now with, with, you know, cloud computing, large language models, you know, computer vision, machine learning, all those things can be applied to, to respond to requests that come into the accounting team and handle a large percentage of them without any kind of human intervention whatsoever. Yeah. And, and your, so your role in this particular company has shifted over the years as well. Um, you came in as a marketing leader and the, the company's gone through uh, iterations to adapt to a lot of the changes in the market and feedback from customers and such. What is what has your journey been like at this company in terms of the things you've seen and the sort of pivots you've had to make? Yeah, yeah. So today, um, so I started out as you mentioned as the, you know basically the, the the head marketing person, so the VP of marketing. Um, now I'm I'm in charge of what, what are called strategic accounts and market development, which is you know sales development representatives, marketing, and I actually uh, am a an, I'm in an active selling role. So we don't have any. Um, commission-based salespeople at this company because we're creating a category. So uh, how do I describe this in a way that's succinct? Um, When you're creating a category, the worst thing you can do is try to bring people in from outside who who don't understand category creation or who were very successful in a role where they were selling into an established category. I've Mm -hmm. seen that fail more times than I care to admit. So, you know, my CEO and I, you know, he's, he's the founder. He, he and I jointly agreed, why don't you and I sell? So Rohit and I are the sales team. And we've got three SDRs or BDRs who are setting up meetings for us every week. And, you know, we are primarily focused on, you know, a certain cohort of accounts that are Workday oriented. And, you know, we get a lot of uh, warm introductions from our parent company, Workday. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been great. And I've, I, if I had to do it over again, I would have told Rohit, you know, three and a half years ago, let's not hire any salespeople. Let's just you and I do this because number one, Craig, we've learned a lot. We've learned how to sell. We've learned how not to sell. We've learned how to position a product in a new category that didn't exist, like AI for finance and accounting. Um, we learn stuff every single day and um, it's been great. But that is one of the things that uh, has, has been an eye opener on the journey is that uh, the biggest way to, to, to fa- the quickest way to fa- fail is to hire people who are used to selling, you know, established products and try to get them to think about selling into a category that doesn't, didn't exist before. Well, this goes back to your strength. Um, we talked about your superpower of this flexibility, this not having a box. Um, I don't think many people would have been able to go through what you've gone through in the last, you know, four years. I know I'll just give you some kudos because I think this is still a very interesting story that you and I have together. Um, your CEO, when I was onboarding him to run the search, I, I asked him offhandedly, do you know anybody out there that you may or may not be able to recruit yourself that I should go headhunt? 
and your name popped up. So uh, <laughs> you had a reputation that was quite well known in the industry. And uh, I don't think he knew you directly, but he had heard a lot about you. And I went and got you. And mm -hmm. I think that was that was such an interesting, um, I don't know, just a unique aspect of the search at that time. But I remember early on in your first, I mean, you came in at a very early stage in this company, mm -hmm. tremendous risk. Um, <laughs> there's so much ambiguity. Uh, there's, you know, being way ahead of, of a market that was still yet to be established um, with a with a solution um, that I think was still very young. And, you know, the CEO had a very deliberate way of looking at, at how he wanted to put together the different functions of his team. So he he wanted to bring in you as a marketer. And there was a big event coming up, I remember. And he was so he was so amazed at what you were able to accomplish as this initially this one man army. Um, you know, leading up to that first event, I think it was in the spring, but it was, it's, he, he used the term, you gave him the ability to punch so far above the weight class mm -hmm. of the, the competition. Um, mm -hmm. but to see what you guys have gone through over all this time to get where you are today, I don't think many people would have been able to have the, they just wouldn't have survived. They wouldn't have been able to, uh, put it all together and continue to pivot to get to where you are today. Yeah, that's a, that's a very astute observation. Um, having a, a, a global pandemic in the middle of all that didn't didn't hurt either. So like, too. Yeah. <laughs> we all uh, had to be very resilient for, for a period of time. And uh, yeah, there's a lot to be said about launching a company during the middle of a global pandemic because it, it can be done. And we did it um, April 22nd, 2020. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's been a, it, well, uh, it's been a great journey so far. And, you know, well, I hope I'm nowhere near the end of it. Well, and you've get you, you as a result of this sort of uh, unorthodox way of coming into the marketing function. Um, you've seen a lot of. It, it's interesting. You you said earlier that you, um, what was the word that you used when you talked about marketers? It's almost like a like a low regard. I think you said. Yeah. Um, and and you said you still you still kind of do. So you've seen a lot of things that marketers, uh, many of which you might be listening to this today. Um, will come into their roles and they'll just fail right out of the gate. What are some of the things that you have either avoided yourself from observations you've seen other people uh, mess up? What can you tell us about how marketing people uh, kind of come into their roles and fail out of the gate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, um, the number one thing that people do wrong is they set up different objectives and goals and measurements for marketing and sales. Mm -hmm. And that's yep. one where... You know, I, this for me, it's a it's a philosophical, it's a, it's a, it's a religious point for me. Like honestly, I believe that sales and marketing need to be measured on exactly the same number, and that number is either pi pipeline dollars or discrete pipeline opportunities. You know, it's it's one of those things where it's live, active pipeline that gets accepted by salespeople. Um, you know, we, you've heard of MQLs or marketing qualified leads. Salespeople don't give a shit about MQLs. Marketing people do. But the, the, the quickest way to fail is to have marketing people um, measured and bonused and gold on MQL creation and salespeople on sales accepted opportunities or sales accepted leads. You know, that that's a recipe for disaster. And I've, I've come into three different companies to, to fix that problem. And so, you know, hopefully that answers your question about how marketers fail out, out of the gate. And that is, that's one of them, the misalignment on goals. So, so you realign instead of having marketing go to marketing qualified leads and sales, you know, be tied to their their close rate on on actual pipeline. You do you put uh, both 
on the same revenue number of just like you just point everybody to we're working toward this one closed number, this one actual quarterly revenue number. Well, I think you could, you know, you could, but at some point, you know, it goes out of marketing's hands and is entirely prosecuted by sales. And, um, you know, salespeople can be effective, not effective. Some deals close, some don't. You know, I would I would measure both on that sales accepted opportunity, which is I as a marketer created something for you. You've said there's something there. You want to work on it. You're accepting that into your pipeline that you're mm-hmm. going to be scrutinized on. Um, your boss is going to be asking you questions about it every week. Um, you're going to have to you know do the, the work to, to close it. So that that the intersection of, of sales and marketing is what I would call the sales accepted leads or sales okay. accepted opportunities. Um, yeah, I mean, you could you could bonus people based on close one deals, but it's that's pretty far um, out of the, the control marketing of sense. People, yeah. But and then the other thing I'd like to say is that um, I'm not saying you should never count MQLs, but I would I would use them as a leading indicator. Like, how many MQLs do you need to have one sales accepted opportunity historically? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a unknowable number. You can go figure it out. You can pull some reports out of Salesforce or your CRM and figure out, okay, how many MQLs do we need to get to one sales accepted opportunity? Um, but again, that's a leading indicator. That's not a measure of success. Yeah. Well, so what has been repeated to some of the conventional wisdom um, in marketing in general that you do not agree with? Because there sounds like there's a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> this one, I'll give you just a couple of tactical examples, you know, you know, hey, Nick, when's, when's the best time of the week to send an email, uh, you know, a marketing email blast? And it used to be the conventional wisdom, and you'll still see this if you look at your inbox. Um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, you know, 10 a.m. 10, 10 to 11.30 a.m. And so that became the, the spamming hour. If you look at your inbox, you will get a ton of spam on Tuesdays and Thursdays between 10 and 11.30 or 10 and 12, because that's when people, you know, have said to do it. But, you know, I guess my, my guidance and advice to anybody listening to this is don't trust that. Figure it out on your own. Maybe for mm-hmm. your market, it's Monday afternoons. Maybe it's Friday mornings. I send a ton of emails on Saturday mornings um, or even Sundays sometimes. Saturday mornings because, you know, I'm trying to get to the CFO. And I know for a fact that on Saturday morning, that CFO is either in line at Starbucks and they're waiting for their coffee um, and if they get an email popping in and it's like the only email that they're getting that morning, they might take a look at it and spend like 30 seconds browsing that. Or maybe they're at their kid's soccer game and they should be paying attention to the kids on the field, but instead they're looking at their phone. And so I, I have found that, you know, you can send emails on weekends and get a, a higher response rate, depending on how high up in the organization you're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. So I guess the meta theme here, Craig, is don't believe um, what people say is the conventional wisdom. Challenge it every single time and figure out what works for you and your company and the persona that you're going after at this moment in time. Because, by the way, that will also change over time. Another big challenge that I bump up across a lot in the work that I do is it's it's oftentimes executives have um, a belief about what a marketer should be able to do. And I think that there there are challenges that come along with communicating what marketing is capable of, what's realistic, and having that clash with we have this particular target or goal we have to hit, make it happen, it's come hell or high water. Yeah. Um, what have you learned about being able to to because you've encountered this a lot, I'm sure, throughout yeah. your career? Yes, many different companies. Um, and it's it's funny because like people want to treat everything like a math problem, but you know you have to have constraints. You know, like in you know 
if you look at something on paper or in Excel, you don't have any constraints. So, you know, let's say that the company wants to hit, you know, $10 million in revenue, then that means you need X number of opportunities that are closed one at Y um, average selling price or average sub- subscription price if you're a SaaS company. And so you have to, you know, do what's called a reverse waterfall and you back into it from there. And finally, somebody says, well, because, you know, in order to get to that number of 10 million, we're going to need to do, um, you know, 400 demos next year. And I point out, I'll sometimes echo back and I'll say, okay, so what you're saying is we need to do more than one demo every single day of the year, including Saturdays and Sundays and holidays, um, right? And they go, oh, well, uh, well, maybe not on Saturdays and Sundays. Okay. And just know that for finance and accounting people, the first month, the first week of the month is pretty much a dead week because they're closed the book. So now you've taken at least, um, you know, 12 weeks off the table. So now you're, yeah. you're going to try to cram 400 demos into, into 200 days. Um, and so I guess the, the point here is you can't defy the laws of physics. There are like limitations on how many hours there are in a day and how much work a certain person can do. Um, unless you're going to add more people, you know, there's, there's no, you, you have to obey the laws of physics. And that's the one thing that I, I have to keep reminding very senior people at companies I've worked at that um, although your model uh, says that we need to produce, you know, 400 demos, you have to figure out, is that going to be physically possible given the resources that we have today? So you're just, you're just forcing them to run the math that they didn't do? Yeah, well, or, or to, to, to bring in some assumptions that like there are constraints on any model, that there's mm-hmm. no, there's no infinite number of demos that we can do, you know, or, you know, I guess, um, yeah, yeah. So you have to, I guess I'm just trying to bring people back to reality that yeah. it's not just what's, what is, what, what the numbers say, but what's actually physically possible for people to do. Well, because I focus on, you know, primarily placing marketing and sales leaders. And so I, I'm on both sides of those conversations with the CEO. And I'll, I, I just think it's interesting because they'll, the board will have a particular target, right? They'll, that comes from the board meetings that we want to do X next year. And then they break it into quarters and whatever. But then it has to fall on sales side or the marketing side. So a lot of organizations will weigh more heavily on the sales side if they're doing an enterprise sale. And, you know, marketing is just supposed to kind of grease the skids or grease the slide for for the salespeople. Um, I just wonder how you keep sales and marketing aligned when, uh, you know, you push back and say, well, that means this many demos. And then they look over at sales and they say, well, they're going to have to double their close rate. You know, they're going to have to have some miracle happen or we're going to have to have some magical way to open up new accounts. Yeah. I just think that there's so much inherent conflict between both sides that I just well, wonder when you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, yes, there is conflict, um, but that's also an opportunity. And so, you know, I mentioned before how marketers fail, that they they set themselves up for failure by measuring them on different metrics than, than the sales team. But there's also another component, and that is that there has to be an open dialogue, and that has to manifest itself through, um, like, con- continuous communication. Like, at my current company, uh, I run a 7.30 a.m. Pacific call called the Go-To-Market Stand-Up. It's 30 minutes. It's all the SDRs. It's the two sales reps, me and our CEO. It's our solutions consulting team. It's our marketing team. So we all, you know, all the dogs around the dish, we all get together every morning at 7.30. At my previous companies, I would do it like once a week, but we'd have sales and marketing and product and everybody there. You got to have these conversations and we'd all look at the numbers. I mean, step one on the agenda is let's review the numbers of last week and kind of maybe come up with some narrative around why do the numbers look this way? 
If they're good, why are they good? Can we replicate that? If they're bad, why are they bad? You know, where do we where do we screw up? So I think that there's there's inherent conflict, as you said. There's also a chance for collaboration if the environment mm-hmm. is set up to allow for that. And I, I would argue that it should be set up. And that needs to be driven by the the C-suite. Well, so you went from doing it weekly at a previous company to now doing it daily. What do you think the difference is in terms of the frequency and how much that helps? Well, when you're doing category creation like I'm doing now, um, having morning checkpoints is great because it allows us all to remain in lockstep. So it's, it's a shared collaboration and accountability meeting. So I'll give, um, we'll all go around the table and talk about yesterday. You know, what, what do we think about the demo yesterday? Do we think, you know, should we advance that to a new another stage within Salesforce? Should we move that forward in the pipeline? Um, do we think we can close that this quarter? So we do some collaboration and accounting, uh, you know, on, on that side, accountability. But then there's also planning for what's coming up today. Like, oh, we've got this new demo today that's going to be with this other account. We've never met them before. Let's talk about some of the players. Let's talk about the approach. How are we going to do this thing differently? So I think the fact that we're a young company in a active category creation mode, you know, we might even want to do it more than once a day, like beginning and the end of every day. You know, whereas at a mature company like an ERP firm, where I did it once mm-hmm. a week, it's, it's it's a more mature thing. And you know, quite frankly, those the, the, these folks have other things to do. Just having a weekly checkpoint is is important. But if you're going to have a weekly checkpoint, have a weekly checkpoint. Don't have it on the calendar and then cancel it like five minutes before every week. Actually, well, the motions and do it. Well, I've been in meetings where um, it's just the whole sales team and it's a pipeline review call, right? It's a weekly pipeline review. And there's a whole bunch of energy and a whole bunch of puffery happening around the table mm-hmm. about, is this deal going to close? Is that deal going to close? Marketing's not usually in the room. Um, and I find that, I just find that fascinating. I wonder what the the big aversion is to bringing those two together. It, it, like you said, it goes back to the C-suite in terms of how much they want to create that mm-hmm. alignment. Do you think there's any, um, there's a point of view where, the tension's healthy to have them be silos, the functions? Uh, I, I don't think so. I mean, unless unless I can be convinced otherwise. But, you know, I'll give you a good example of like how um, that scenario that you just painted right there. Salespeople sitting around the table, a lot of puffery, talking about closing deals and what we need to do. If you had a marketing person in that meeting, and let's, appro- let's, let's assume that that marketing person was good, which is right. you know, not to be assumed, but let's say you have a good one. A marketing person might raise their hand and say, hey, you know what? I think I can help you here. What if we put together this kind of VIP packet and with you know a, a cover letter that's from you and you're asking for the business and lay out all the different things that we can do for them and put in all the different you know solution briefs and things and let's send that over to the CFO. You know, marketing can actually do things like like that, like put together some very high touch, high glossy sales materials that could be for a VIP audience. There's things mm-hmm. we can do with swag campaigns and sending like jackets or mugs and things. There's a million ways that marketers can support deal closure, but they got to think about it and they got to like be invited to the table. And I think that the, in most cases, the marketing team is not even invited to the table. Well, let's, let's talk about how you define and execute um, a go-to-market strategy. I mean, it sounds like you've had to make multiple pivots, right? especially mm-hmm. for something that's early, like a category creation, uh, such as what you're involved in today. H- how, do you, how do you define and execute a go-to-market strategy for something such as what you're promoting today? What does that look like? Yeah, so the, the first thing is, like I said, uh, understanding the wants, needs, fears, desires, and motivation of your buyer, who's a, a risk-averse finance person or a CFO. Um, and then understand that we're asking them to take a chance on some technology that didn't exist five years ago. So right. um, 
So, so yeah, you just understanding what, where your headwinds are. But then you also have a whole group of people that are out there that are in pain. And if you can convince them, if you, if you can remind them that they're in pain, um, then you can also remind them that we sell pain reliever. And mm-hmm. you know, your team is miserable right now. They're not getting all their work done. Your vendors are not happy. Your customers are not happy. Everyone's tired and overworked. And, and you're missing your KPIs. Guess what? We have a way to help you. And here's what we would do. Um, so you know, you'll, you'll, you'll have to find the people who are uh, maybe more open. And that could be different types of companies, different industries. Um, you know, software companies or companies that have AI in their product today are more open to learning about AI. Whereas maybe a company that's like, you know, an organization that's a, a nonprofit or a government organization or even an educational institution, yeah, those, those might not be your early adopters. So, you know, when I think about going to market, I think about understanding the needs of the buyer, understanding what we can do to, to solve their pain, mm-hmm. understanding which cohorts within your total addressable market are more likely to um, transact with you or even take a meeting. Mm-hmm. And then doing everything you can to get in front of those buyers and not taking um, no for an answer. So you've had to iterate with different size customer targets within different segments, right? Whether it's industry or size. Mm-hmm. And you've and you've learned more about that in the last six months or 12 months from getting more hands-on with the CEO co-selling than before yeah. taking kind yeah. of a shot in the dark. Yeah, yeah. And what we figured out is that big companies have big problems. Small companies have small problems. And mm-hmm. uh We'll occasionally get an inbound from our website. Somebody filled out a form. Hey, um, we'd love to talk to you guys about applying AI to my my finance and accounting team. And then when we talk to them, we find out that you know they don't really have a lot of what I would call transactional volume or velocity. And so, you know, you're not going to be able to afford a solution you know that's going to solve a big problem when you don't have a big problem. So that's that's one of the things. But you know, connecting to Workday customers. Workday is a is a cloud-based ERP or financial management system. And by definition, their, uh, their accounts are typically on the larger side, meaning, um, you know, 500 million up to, up to two, five, 10 billion or more. Um, and so those, those companies have tried everything under the sun, including hiring as many people as they can, and they're still falling behind and they have to do something different. So those larger companies need automation and they need the AI-based automation. And so the, the pivots that you've made over time um, have been through kind of going more up market yeah. over the last little bit. Yeah, for sure. And we, for the first couple of years, we did sell what I would call chips and salsa deals. You know, these are small, you know, small transactions, just to try, try to get a customer logo up on the board. But um, if you can reel in a large transaction, you know, it's just as much effort, I think, sometimes to reel in a small transaction. But, um, you know, selling in, into larger accounts means you can sell fewer of them at a higher price tag and therefore you can make better use of your minutes in your day. But often the fear with building a product for a larger like enterprise customer out of the gate is that it can consume so much uh, of the engineering resources to try to customize it for that one particular customer. Um, and only doing so if you feel like you could go and, uh, you know, cookie cutter more customers with those same feature requests, right? So mm-hmm. what have you guys what have you guys learned in terms of um, you know that whole process of going up market and aligning uh, your targets with the product's readiness? Is there any lessons there? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes we just have to let people know, like, here's what's on the truck to be sold today. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what you're asking for doesn't exist today. 
but you're not the first person who asked for it. And we take our, you know, customer and prospect feedback seriously. And so, you know, we'll think about putting that on our product roadmap. And we, you know, we're asking people to come with us on the journey. So, you know, understanding that the product we have today is very different than it was a year ago, and it'll be very different a year from now. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're not looking for somebody who's going to say, hey, I need these three things. Or, I mean, maybe, yes, of course, these three things. But, you know, we, the other three things that you need, we're going to have them. You just got to give us some time to develop it. And by the way, we want your input. We want you to have a seat at the table and give us, you know, help us guide our product roadmap. So it's really a, more of a partnership. And those are the best kind of customers that, that they, they work with you. You work with them. It's not a, you know, you work for me, Mr. Vendor. It's, hey, we're in this together. Let me help you succeed and you're going to help me succeed. Yeah. And I'm curious, there's so much disruption happening right now with AI, right? ChatGPT is, you know, theoretically wiping out the hopes and dreams of just a whole slew of startups, <laughs> right? Um, and when you first started in this company and you, you were, you were mostly competing with the status quo and is that mm-hmm. still the case today? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you can either have, you know, people doing it or you can have robots doing it, you know, or what right. we call smart bots. Um, and so we are competing with, with offshore and, uh, what are called shared services organizations or, you know, global business services. So we're, we're competing with, with, um, you know, just throwing bodies at the problem. Uh, mm-hmm. but it's, again, that's not sustainable because, you know, Craig, remember I told you a few minutes ago that every, every math problem has its constraints. Um, there's only 7 billion people on planet earth. You know, at some point you run out of people, whether it's in the Philippines or India or Tennessee or wherever, um, you will run out of people and they, they, those people will refuse to do that work for you at the amount of money that you want to pay. So at some point you, um, you have to ha- find a step change. And in this case, the step change would be applying artificial intelligence and advanced technology. Yeah. So, so in terms of the stuff that's happening in the world of AI, is it accelerating what you were doing before? Is it changing the the architecture of the product at all? Or are you guys staying on the course with the sort of the way that you were building the solution prior to all this activity happening? No, we're, we've, we've uh, incorporated large language models into our product. In fact, there are several uses for it. In fact, when an email comes into a finance shared mailbox, you know, we summarize that in one or two lines, and that just gets surfaced up to a person if necessary. So that summarization uh, exists through, through large language models and you know, these, this kind of open AI type of technology. But also we're, we're seeing possibilities of having like a, a generative AI bot create an email and give it to a person to review before sending, you know, mm-hmm. like, Hey, this email came in and the, the, the person's looking for this. I put an email together for you that, you know, asks, you know, gives them what, what they're looking for. Um, why don't you take a look at it, Mr. Human, and then hit send when you're ready to go. That I think is, uh, we didn't have that on our roadmap four years ago. And because of chat GPT, that sort of co-pilot or automated assistant um, functionality is coming more to the forefront. And by the way, it's one of those things where now people have their hands on the AI. It's not a black box behind the scenes. Yeah. It's something that's served up to me and I can click yes or send. And now I'm, I'm touching the AI. You know, we are, I mean, coexisting with AI on a daily basis. Yeah. And are, so are you, are you actually um, using sort of chat GPT like tools for your own campaigns and yeah. creative endeavors? Yeah. 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 Um, so you know, we use it for, you know, content generation, you know, blog articles, um, reports, webinars, you know, as a, as a starting point, of course, you yeah. know, we're not, 
you know, you, you, you probably, if you've seen any kind of generative AI, sometimes the results that it comes up with are crazy. Um, <laughs> and it has a lot to do with how you ask the query. Um, mm-hmm. but it, it definitely, we're still at that point with, with GPT that you have to review the, the outputs to make sure that it's like, this is what you want it to sound like. And in some cases, what we do is we take that and we iterate on it. We brainstorm. We we use it as a starting place. We we run it through other you know systems like Grammarly, which is another AI based system that is going to mm-hmm. clean up and summarize and shorten and get rid of uh, you know unclear sentences. But uh, yeah, I use as a marketer, I use GPT in my my job every single day. How much efficiency improvements would you say that it's given you? Like, are you at the point where you couldn't live without it, or are you still in the phase where it's like ah? It, well, we're, it's it's changing the way we're doing things, but it's not something that I, you know, I, I, I can't live without. I'll give you a I'll give you a specific example that I can't live without, um, and that's really more of my sales role. So, you know, at the end of each call, um, I, we record the calls using you know a call recording system from Zoom Info called Chorus, and mm-hmm. um, what Chorus does is it records the call, but it also transcribes the call. And then it summarizes the call into action items and discussion points. I don't just copy and paste those, but I nearly just copy and paste those. So I've taken they're my, that good. yeah, they're, they're that good. I've taken my follow-ups after a meeting. I've gotten that down to less than 15 minutes where I, I have a template that I use. I copy and paste the names of the people who, who uh, were on the call. I copy and paste a link to the recording. I let the system summarize it for me. I'll go through it lightly, wordsmith it for clarity because sometimes it does get things wrong. Um, but I'll I'll use it. I'll I'll use that as my action items and and then the meeting summary points. And I'll get that that follow up email out within like let's say a half an hour after the calls ended. That used to take me two hours, and now I can do it in less than fifteen minutes. Yeah, I find it to be um, a good place to generate. Uh so many different ideas as a starting point like you said it kind of gets the the gears moving can give you some stuff to work with but a lot of reviews necessary and i I wonder what the future looks like with sort of the the go-to-market function with um so much over automation where it's trying to do too many things and it just the inboxes and the social media feeds where no people are just going for volume and they're not actually proofing it or caring about Mm -hmm. standing behind the messaging it's more just all robotic and how much it's yeah. going to flood the airwaves. Well, you know, as I've said before, you know, you have to have some skill uh, as a marketer or as a salesperson in order to use the tools. Like having a set of watercolors doesn't make you Rembrandt, right? Right. Um, you have to have some skill in using the, the tools. So although ChatGPT can be used to generate a lot of content, unless you're thoughtful about like what is the content that your buyer is looking for, where are their gaps, where can we provide something of value and something maybe a little bit outside of what they've seen before? So I would argue that, you, yes, you can go for quantity, but you know, I think what these tools will allow you to do is provide better quality um, versus just you know, spamming people. Well, I want to zoom out and ask you um, about just how you find meaning in the work that you do, because it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work. It's a slog, right? Like there's trying to create a new category. is not easy. Um, <laughs> having to pivot all these different times and go and shift your role and, and do all the things that you've done. Like what, what is it that keeps giving you other than a paycheck? Like what, what gets you up in the morning to want to keep doing this? What have, yeah. you, what have you learned about that? 
Yeah, what it, it, these I have these rare moments. I, I think I probably have one every three or four months where I will like literally either take some time off or you know go away or go, be in a different place, and I'll kind of go back and, and take a look at what we've done over the last four years, and and what I kind of lose the forest for the trees sometimes because each mm-hmm. day, you know, the the incremental movement forward is so small you don't actually notice it, but when you step back and go wow, here's where we were six months ago and here's where we are today. A year ago, I was still trying to convince people that AI is coming. Now they're coming to me and saying AI is coming. Um, so I think one of the things that keeps that's important to do is, you know, it's easy to lose the forest for the trees when every single day you're, you're moving forward an inch. But if you are able to zoom out a little bit and take a look at what you've accomplished over a, a six month period or a year or a couple of years, it's actually pretty impressive. Um, the other thing that keeps me going is the fact that that other people have done it before in other categories. Like category creation is difficult. I won't lie. It's hard. What you're trying to get people to do is think about an existing problem in a very different way. But um, the, the, the example I, I tend to use is, is Uber or Lyft as an example. Mm-hmm. You know, Craig, you and I were told from the, when we were small, you know, don't get into cars with strangers. You know, that's like the one thing you learn. Don't get into a car with a stranger. And the, um, the thing is that uh, over time, you know, they've, um, you know, Uber has helped us understand that you can get in a car with a stranger and it's much more convenient than, um, you know, a taxi. So, but that didn't happen overnight. Um, so, you know, when the founders of Uber started the company back in 2007, it wasn't until 2012, like five years later, that they actually got any traction around mm-hmm. picking up people and, and having people use Uber as the uh, the primary uh, way of getting around, you know, instead of taxis. So, so you're motivated to get in front of something that hasn't, uh, well, to create something that's never been created before. That's a big motivating factor, and you're relying on the fact that it's these other stories of people having done it that are motivating. Um, part of it's got to be the the team that you get to work with, right? Because you spend so much time together. Tell me more about that. Yeah, yeah. So it's been great, you know. Um, when, as you, as you mentioned, like you know, Rohit specifically wanted to talk to me four years ago, and you know, we've had a, a great run, and uh, I think he did a really good job of trying to talk me out of working for the company. But I stuck it out, and I was like, no, 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 I want to work for this company. Um, but it's been, he's been super supportive, wonderful human being, um, and you know, from the founders' perspective, um, you know, they've created a a really great culture at the company, and although culture is something that people they talk a lot about and you know, people say how important culture is. I've worked at some companies that are like, man, it shortens your life. It's like stressful. Mm-hmm. You don't know who's on, on your team, who's not on your team. You know, you turn around, somebody's holding a knife, like, come on. Like, but you know, it's, it's completely 180 degrees different when you are working in a supportive environment where rather than point fingers, people are like willing to like help and like help you carry the weight and, you know, let's find creative solutions to these problems. Let's work together. It's th- that's the, the type of uh, of company that I like to work for. Um, I'm very fortunate that you know the founding team at Auditoria has created that, um, and it's one of those things. There's only maybe a handful of companies I've worked for in my career that I would say that's an awesome culture. Most of the time, it's either eh, you know, neutral or you know just negative. Well, and you also have a unique uh, thing that you do where you open up your, I don't know if other people do this, but you open up your calendar to everybody to see what's going oh, yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 
And I think it's, you know, it's important. I've, I've done that for years that, you know, even people who report to me, if they want to see what I'm doing throughout the day, who I'm meeting with, you know, what's on my calendar, you know, I think it's important to have that kind of uh, transparency. And, you know, quite frankly, that's some people don't like to do that because they don't want people to know what they're working on. And if you don't want people to know what you're working on, I get it. You know, like maybe you're, you know, the, the, the general counsel uh, of the firm and maybe we shouldn't see, the, you know, what the top lawyer of the company is working on. Uh, maybe if you're in mergers and acquisitions, we shouldn't see those, you know, some meetings that are on there because people could have insider information. But those are like outlier examples. I think in general, we should all be very confident and comfortable that we're doing the company's work every single day and that we're not, you know, at the golf course or, you know, interviewing another firm. By the way, if you want to do that, cool, go do it. But don't do it on the company time, you know, do it after hours. You know? So when you when we go back and talk about the meaning that you get from uh, being involved in this endeavor and the amount of heart and soul you put into it every single day, um, what you know, this is still considered a startup, obviously. Um, and you think about people that are working in larger companies um, who may wonder what it's like to be in a startup. And then you got people that are maybe just joining the workforce and are curious if they should go work in a bigger company uh, or in a startup. What can you say having worked in companies of the different sizes? Um, what mm -hmm. can you say to them to either scare them away or scare them into... Um, you know, being good, a good fit for this sort of stage and category creation that you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, early on in somebody's career, it makes sense to go work for a big company. Yeah, I did. You know, first company, uh, you know, out of college was HBO. They were part of Time Warner, you know, probably 120,000 employees at Time Warner at the, in the early nineties. So, you know, working for a big company is great when you're, you know, when you're coming up because there's a lot of support and you learn how to do things like write memos or, you know, email etiquette, office etiquette. So large companies are great for starting out your career. And I can only speak about myself, you know, um, as I've gotten older, for me, you know, I'm, I don't need somebody kind of breathing down my neck to get my job done. I don't need that kind of structure and support that I, that I maybe needed, like when I was, you know, starting out in my career. But the thing about startups is that you have to be able to thrive in ambiguous situations where there is necessarily maybe not a right or wrong answer, but there are, you know, an infinite number of right and wrong answers that are on a gradient. Um, and you have to maybe choose the solution that is best at the moment, but maybe not the perfect solution. So uh, if, if you don't do well in ambiguity, join a big company with established processes. If you thrive in um, problem solving and situations where you have to use creativity and flexibility and, and think about the problem in different ways, you know, then maybe a startup is, is for you. But um, the other thing about startups, is, and this is one where like, this is more of a financial thing. Um, if you are the sole breadwinner in your family and you've got lots of, you know, fixed expenses like kids tuition and mortgages and things like that, you know, maybe a startup is not the right place for you because, you know, the vast majority of startups don't make it to their series A um, and then even fewer make it to their series B. So, you know, the company I'm at right now, we're, we're, we've achieved more than like 99.9% .9 of startups that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of them that just never make it. And so that's the other thing you should be aware of. And that's something I saw last year when we hired some folks, they, they were enamored with the, the startup life that they, that they imagined it would be like, but when it came down to it, you know, they were disappointed because it's, uh, 
not a lot of supervision. There's a lot of ambiguity and there's no guarantee for success. So why would somebody want to do it? (laughs) (laughs) A couple of answers. You know, one is that maybe some people have the ability to see things that other people can't see, you know, or they see past, you know, they see further down the road than other people can see. Um, Or some people just thrive in, in situations where they want to create. Like, look, I mean, I I don't want to be one of 120,000 people, you know, I want to be, I want to have an outsized impact on, the, the success of the firm. And I think I am today. So if, and, you know, that's, it depends on what makes you tick. Some people want to like hide out and um, fly under the radar and some people don't. And so, you know, if you want to hide out and you know, fly under the radar, go, go with a large company, you know, be part of a, you know, 30 person group where you can, if you don't do your job, nobody notices, you know, and those, mm. those, those companies exist and those are great, you know, but, um, I personally couldn't work in one anymore. Well, Nick, I was talking to my sister the other day and she, she left me a message talking about a conspiracy that she is like, I don't know how I didn't see this before. She works in a large hospital system uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah. She's a genetic counselor and she's a, a, a team lead of a big group of genetic counselors. And she said that she stumbled upon like a Reddit thread that talked about this, um, this movement of people who I don't know that there was a label for it. I'm sure there is a label, but it's uh, people that purposefully work in large businesses and do as little as possible in order to keep their job and not get found out. And she said, she said, Craig, I, I should have known this existed before, but I'm encountering it in my own workplace. She just recently published a, a paper that's being published in one of the journals um, about data points on um, her her workflow and the numbers of, you know, different cases and the billing rates and things like that. It's a pretty big deal. But she said that she's pretty baffled when she looks at the data and sees how poor of an overall performance it is as to, I don't know what benchmarks that she's comparing against, but it just made me think, you know, she's wired the way that she's wired to mm-hmm. not be that person. Uh, mm-hmm. The way that she and I were both raised with our our parents and the values that we had, I can't imagine ha- being able to even fathom that way of going to work, clocking in. You know, time card fraud I think is one of the labels uh, that is, is often used in those forums. But the ability to hide out and do as little as possible, as opposed to being in a startup where you have to get more done in what a week than most people in larger companies have to get done in a month. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think um, there's something about being responsible and being accountable, being part of something that has never been done before, getting in early, being able to get the the outsized returns, hopefully, of being at the start of something with a, a young team that for me just fits. And that's why I work in this space. And obviously, mm-hmm. you having done, uh, you know, a lot of both. Um, do you have a place where you I mean, obviously, you're doing what you're doing now. Do you ever see gravitating to a larger company down the road, or do you do you have a, a place where you found your sweet spot? Well, I I, I think my my sweet spot is companies that are under five hundred people. Um, yeah, and, and I can pretty much point to every company I've worked for as soon as they cross that five hundred person threshold, mm. uh, and it's impossible to know the names of all the people, and there's a lot of redundancy and bureaucracy and things that get in the way. Um, you know, I could work for a larger company, but it wouldn't be for very long. Um, you know. So that's, that's, uh, I don't know. I, I, 
I thrive in the startup environment or helping nurture small marketing teams and work, working with people who are starting out in their careers to help them learn how to be the best marketers they can be. But with respect to people hiding out, um, you know, in organizations, I've, I've seen that over and over and over again at companies. And you see it manifest itself sometimes where people, will, they make a, a career out of just showing up at meetings. You know, all they do is show up at meetings and they just sit in meetings all day. They don't take notes or do anything. They even show up at meetings that they're not invited to. And, you know, that's what they do all day. Um, you know, this is, I think Mike Judge had a, a movie called Office Space back in the late 90s that talked about that very thing, which is like that, you know, people just go into the office. They do the bare minimum. They hope that their boss doesn't notice. And then they, they sneak out the side door when, you know, as quick as they can. Yeah, I just I can't relate with it. But no. uh, I guess that's why you have a threshold where I guess it's easier for that to start to become more rampant when companies get larger than whatever the number is, 500 or whatever. I think, think about this, Craig. I think about any job you've done where if you're not very busy, just the day drags on. It's like the mm-hmm. clock hands move so slow. Um, but if you're busy, you know, the, the day goes by fast. And I'd rather like the day go by fast so I can go 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 home and do what I want to do, spend time with my family, with my kids. But um, I mean, we all we all have that experience where if you're not busy, it's painful. But if you are busy, where would the day go? Wow, the day's already over, you know, or the well, week, or the month. What advice would you would you give to a brand new go to market leader um, who's just starting out and say wants to get into a startup? What What are some tips or advice you could give to someone like that? Yeah, well, you got to wear a lot of different hats, and quite frankly, some of them are helmets. Um, <laughs> he, I, I, yeah, it's a hard hat. Sometimes it's a, sometimes it's a, it's an army helmet. You know, it's you know you're taking shrapnel sometimes. But um, yeah, there's every day you're doing something different. So you know, uh, I don't think I've ever done the same task like day in and day out in the three years, nine months I've been at this company. I think every single day has been different. Um, so if if you're if you thrive in that and you're, you want variety and you you have a lot of different areas that you can provide value. I think it's super fun. You know, on Monday, you're the webmaster on Tuesday, you're a content creator on Wednesday, you're an event person on Thursday, you're a, a sales enablement person on Friday, you're something else, you know? So, uh, I personally think that if, if, if I would give some advice to new marketers that are coming into a startup, that would be the one thing I'd tell them is like, get ready for every day to be a different thing. What about their selection of choosing a company to join, um, whether it's working under a particular type of leader, um, aligning with a particular you know buyer they can empathize with, promoting a particular type of product that gets them excited, that helps them get up in the morning? You know, do you have, do you have any advice there about the things that you've observed and learned yourself? Yeah, yeah. Be very careful about um, choosing your uh, your startup, specifically around the founder uh, or the founding team. You know, I, I, uh, I've had enough experience now, which I, I knew which questions to ask and what to look for, if there were any warning signs. But, um, you know, Rohit's done it before. You know, Adina has done it before. So having a founding team that's been there and done that, uh, they, not that they're going to do it the same way this time that they did before, but they've been in a situation where they have been in a startup. That's important. I, I once said, like 10 years ago, I'd never work for somebody who didn't have a boss. Um, and that was, that was when I was working for somebody who was the owner of the company and mm-hmm. he reported to no one. And when you have a, a person who has no boss and you report to them, then they just have unchecked power. So, you know, 
at the end of the day, you know, the team I work for reports to the board and those, and the board represents the interests of the investors. So we're all kind of pulling in the same direction, but you got to be very cautious about uh, the founder and the founding team and the direction uh, and how I'll put it this way. You know, the, the, sometimes strategies change and sometimes they change like every day or every week. Be careful, you know, that's this is the, the, the analogy of the kids kicking the soccer ball. You know, if you ever seen, you know, how little kids play soccer, you know, they all run together in a group and then somebody kicks the ball over there and they all go racing in that direction. And somebody kicks the ball over here and they all go racing in that direction. And that's great if you're watching your kids play soccer, but it's not the way to run your startup. So there has to be some discipline about the mission. Not that we can't pivot or make adjustments along the way, but you can't pivot every week, you know, 180 degrees and do something totally different. So um, I don't know about the buyer or the persona. You definitely should work for a, um, you know, a company where you believe in the mission and believe in the product and believe that the product itself has value and is, has got unique value. But um, yeah, that's kind of table stakes. But, you know, I guess my other thing is ask lots of questions of the founding team before you join. And any any particular tips for uh, understanding, you know, like a, a marketing leader to work under and how they know their stuff or are full of it? You know, you having sort of a bias toward marketers. Yeah, yeah I guess I would ask them, that, what is their relationship with sales? You know, that's, that's the number one question. If they look at you, they blink at you and they don't have an answer, then that's a problem. But if they say something like, you know, what I would want to hear is, oh, yeah, you know, we've got a very close alignment between sales and marketing and we're all measured on the same goals and we're all pulling in the same direction. We've got a weekly uh, accountability meeting and collaboration meeting. And, um, you know, we, you know, we go out for drinks after, after work with the SDR team and, you know, the marketing team pays for it on the marketing credit card. You know, it, it's that kind of stuff. If you, um, if, if you hear those types of things, great. If they say, I don't know about the sales team, I don't know anybody over there, then like danger, be, be careful. So what advice would you give to an emerging go-to-market leader about building and leading a successful go-to-market team with all that you've learned? Well, uh, I would say when you hire people, um, I'll just give you my perspective. I don't hire people for what they've done in the past. I hire people for what I think they're going to do in the future. And I want them to do those things for me, just selfishly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you know, previous performance is not an indicator of future success, right? Your mileage may vary. And one of the problems with hiring people who have done you know, X at five different companies is that all they know how to do is X. And I even interviewed a lady one time. She said, yeah, I do five things. And one of them was a, you know, a dummies guide or something like that. And I said, okay, what, what about when you're done with those five things? Like, what, what do you do next? She goes, well, I, I generally look for another job then. Cause I, all I do is these five things. So, <laughs> um, I, so maybe those people have their place, but I would say as you are thinking about hiring people and building your team, challenge people, Try to find people with unconventional backgrounds um, that maybe th- don't have exactly the pedigree you're looking for, but they have the capacity to learn and grow and um, and do more. I, I think you'll get more mileage out of somebody who uh, who wants to prove themselves to you because you took a chance on them than somebody who convinced you that they are the next great thing because of everything they did at your last company. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. What's the, what's the biggest hiring mistake or horror story that you've ever heard about or seen? And what do you think should have been done differently? Yeah, not trusting my judgment on certain people who I, um, I'm not going to mention his name on your podcast, but uh, the, it was a candidate. And when we did the background check, um, you know, we couldn't find any record of him attending whatever university he put on his application. And then um, 
you know, then our HR person said, you know, as long as he can produce a diploma, you know, that'll be good enough, which it took him a week and he produced a beautifully Photoshopped diploma. Um, <laughs> and, you know, this guy was kind of full of shit. And it was one of those things like, you know, <laughs> you know, how did you think you were going to do once you got the job, man? Like, you're clearly not um, qualified for it now. Like, what is, it's like the dog catches the car. Like, okay, you caught the car. Now you got the job. You, you bluffed your way through it and you, you didn't actually have any of these qualifications. How, how do you think you're going to succeed here? You know, so I guess um, I, I've made a couple of errors in hiring where I did not trust my instincts. And I, um, hmm. I was so desperate to make a hire that uh, I overlooked certain things. And that's never a good sign. Well, speaking of diplomas, um, how much do you think education in marketing or in go-to-market matters? Like, are you going to give someone a stronger preference if they've gotten a degree in marketing versus uh, had other stories where they kind of learn their way through bootstrapping it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why people put on, um, you know, on their the job description, you know, four-year degree or other qualified experience or something like yep. that. Um, all, all having a college degree says to me or any other employer is that you stuck with something for a period of time. You know, you have a four year degree and you stuck with it for four years. And whether you learned anything in that time about, you know, I don't know, chemistry, physics, water skiing, um, doesn't matter. You, you stuck with something and that's the only thing that that means. Cause you're, whatever skills you're going to learn, you're going to learn on the job anyway. Um, even the stuff I learned 30 years ago, Craig, I, I, I if I could remember it, I don't think it would be applicable for what I need right now. <laughs> yeah. So, so what's the, what was that? I was going to say, you know, I guess to answer your question directly, I, I would hire somebody without a college degree as long as I was confident that they were going to be, um, you know, stick around, they're going to stick around, they're going to be stable, they're going to be, you know, that, that they would bust their ass trying to prove to me that I made the right decision for them. Yeah. 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 The motivational factors. I think whatever somebody decides to study in school can, you know, show particular areas of interest, you know, if they're going to study finance versus economics versus engineering of some sort, I think it gives other indications that way as well as did they start something and finish something. But so much yeah. of the time, I personally love to advocate for the candidates who have a, a, a non-traditional background and who have that chip on their shoulder and who have a certain passion and personal connection to whatever the company's mission might be. Those are always kind of my favorite bets. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And those people, the, 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 uh, like, I like how you said it, the people who have a chip on their shoulder, you know, or they have, you know, back when Michael Jordan retired, you know, he had this long speech that was about 20 minutes long and some people dinged him on it, but you know, he, he went through kind of a litany of grievances throughout his entire career. And he's like, Oh yeah. When my coach in high school wouldn't put me in as a starter, you know, he just, mm -hmm. you know, Stoke the fire inside of me, and yeah, coach so and so, you know, did me wrong, and he didn't let me play here. You know, it's through another log on the fire, and you know, at, at the end, it's like, man, this guy is a super bitter individual. <laughs> but his point, the I think the meta theme to take away from that that uh, retirement speech from Michael Jordan is that he had something to prove, and every time he needed some motivation to step up, he would find a way to like, you know, use that like whatever perceived slight he he'd had, he'd, he'd experienced in his, in his life, in his career, he'd use that to, to prove his, his opponents wrong, his critics wrong. Yeah. Use it for fuel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's up? Uh, 
what's the biggest hiring success story that you've ever heard or seen? What, uh, and what was the secret that you think made it successful? Hmm. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll bet you, I think the hardest people to hire and I've been like good and bad. I think I've got a mixed track record of this SDR managers, you know, hmm. I've hired some really, really good SDR managers. And I've also hired some that just, they weren't bad, but they just couldn't hack it and, you know, didn't work out and ended up leaving, going someplace else. But, you know, I, I've, I've worked with very, very good uh, managers for the sales development function. Um, and these are people who have to be able to do the jobs. They typically came up through the ranks of the sales development organization or business development. Um, they have to be able to motivate people who are doing the hardest job in the company. I mean, at the end of the day, you're making phone calls. You're sending out emails to people who aren't asking you for anything. You're trying to get somebody to do something they don't want to do. Um, hardest job in the company, and you got to keep these people motivated. Um, so I think probably my, my best success story um, in hiring would be around hiring sales development managers. And you and so you've had a success story there. Oh, yeah. I'll name drop Brennan Melzer. He's awesome. He's, he's great. Um, and he's built a, you know, a, a powerhouse team. Our go-to-market function at Auditoria, I think, is world-class. We're small, but like we punch way above our weight class to use your... Mm before. Yeah. Nice. What's the craziest thing that you've experienced as a candidate or a hiring manager or that you have heard that has happened to someone else you don't have on yourself? Well, uh, that's <laughs> kind of going back to the same guy. Uh, the way he had to leave our company was I, I told him you either quit or I'm going to have to fire you. Um, because he, he asked for a leave of absence, um, because his mom was sick. Okay, great. Super. Sorry to hear that. Go take care of your mom. Um, but, you know, we'd like to keep you on for 10 hours a week if, if you're okay with that. You know, we, you know, that way you keep, you know, some benefits and, you know, you don't have to take this off your resume or anything like that. And, you know, we, you know, why don't we just work around your schedule? And so he agreed, you know, let's, let's, let's work it out, you know, 10 hours a week. Um, and then I had two different people call me, two different vendors of mine saying, hey, you know, your guy, so-and-so, uh, you know, he's working for another company, don't you? I'm like, really? Uh, yeah, he's working at another company and, um, you know, he, he called us up because he wants to, us to implement our technology at his firm. So the, the, the crazy part about that, Craig, is either his mom was sick and he was using that as an excuse to moonlight at some other company or his mom wasn't sick and he just made that shit up as an excuse to moonlight at another company. But um, the day he was supposed to come in and turn in his laptop um, and, you know, sign his papers and stuff like that. He logged into uh, our Salesforce instance from the Honolulu airport. So, <laughs> oh, like, yeah, yeah, this guy, yeah, that, that's one weird one. Another one is um, I worked with a guy who I'm pretty sure was not even working at our company, that he never even quit his last job. He mm -hmm. refused his LinkedIn profile. Um, even when we asked him to, when he would take sales calls, like he, his camera would pop on for the first few seconds and he's always in the car at a parking lot like probably outside of his building at his, at his office. Um, you get these weird people that are just, I think, unethical. Like that, those two stories right there about double dipping, both of them were double dipping, two different people. Um, I just, I, I, I can't understand what, we're, what people are thinking when they're doing that. Mm -hmm. And so this is another thing about, you know, either narcissistic personality disorder or people who are manipulators is that, you know, they can, you know, they can, they can turn on the charm and, you know, 
kind of like, hey, don't notice this that you're, that you're seeing and focus on this other thing. And you know, there's so many positives that you're like, well, you know, maybe I can gloss over some of these negatives. But that's a mistake, man. Um, mm-hmm. if, you, if you fall in love with a candidate too much, you probably should take a look at what you're, what you're missing and what you're not seeing. Well, and so much, so much of it can be revealed in onboarding too. I mean, if you realize you've made a mistake, you need to learn that real quick and then take quick action. Because if you should, you should be able to surface the problems within the first thirty days. And were there, were there signs with either of those two examples in the first month that you picked up on early? Yeah, or did they reveal both, themselves later. Yeah, both of them. The one guy who, um, who, who fabricated it. I think he fabricated his diploma. Um, that I, I should have taken as a as a hint and, and told HR, please rescind the offer immediately. This mm-hmm. is not working. Um, you know, and then <laughs> that same guy would be in the office early every day, which is great, but he'd be transacting business like in, in Europe or something like that. He'd be on these early morning phone calls, like doing some sort of like other thing. Um, and then people would like say, Hey, you know, this guy, he's on these calls. Like he's almost like he's running his own business out of our, <laughs> out of our office and, oh and he's gosh. talking to people in, in, in Eastern Europe, like what's going on here. But yeah, there's warning signs all over the place. But as you know, you know, you got to kind of, you got to build a case with people once you've hired them that, you know, if it's not working, you got to figure out a way to get them out. And in this yeah. case, it, it crossed a line where the guy was like, I busted him in the act where like, dude, I know you're working another company. Save me the time of, uh, of firing you and just go ahead and quit now. And he did. <laughs> wow. Well, Nick, what's something that's happened to you in your life or career that few people will believe? Hmm. Few people will believe. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I don't know how unbelievable this is. It's probably a boring story. Everybody meets you know famous people, I guess. But um, uh, about 10 years ago, I, I paid Congressman Barney Frank $30,000 to speak at our user conference. Um, and, and he was a terrible speaker, by the way. And, <laughs> oh and he was a jerk too. Like, wow, this guy was the author of the Dodd-Frank, you know, Wall Street Reform Act. And, you know, he was pissed at me because I sent a limo around to pick him up versus letting him drive his own car to the venue. Um, what? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was kind of a jerk to me and my events manager. So, you know, she and I met him when he got out of the limo and he was not happy. But uh, huh. yeah, yeah. So that's 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 one. Um, yeah, I guess I'll save any other stories. Some of them are not flattering. Um <laughs> <laughs> are we okay we're going back to the college days or? <laughs> yeah okay back your back in your band days um, yeah well i worked with i worked for a ceo one time who thought he was hanging up the phone um on you know after a call and as it turns out he wasn't he didn't hang up the phone and uh-huh. and and uh, he, he he called the person an asshole he's like can you believe that asshole oh and then, no and then all of a sudden we hear from the speakerphone i'm still here oh no <laughs> Oh, that sucks. Yeah. yeah Hang is. up the phone. Okay. Um, <laughs> Nick, what are, what are a few things you're most passionate about outside of work? Oh, outside of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, definitely family, you know, spending time with, with my wife and my kids and my dog and, you know, cooking. Um, you know, we do, we're, we're renovating our, our home uh, in Ohio. So like I live here in San Jose, California, but we also have a, a summer cottage in Ohio that I've been slowly trans transforming over the last 10 years, um, you know, to make it a really nice place for us to potentially retire or, 
you know, have, have our kids go out there. And when I have grandkids that they could use the, our lake house and stuff like that. So yeah, a lot of family stuff. I don't golf. So there's that, you know, I don't gamble either, but uh, you know, my wife and I like good food. We like good wine. Um, you know, we enjoy live music and uh, you know, going to concerts and things like that. So I guess we're just normal, you know, middle-aged people. <laughs> All right. What, uh, what is your most exciting five-year sort of crystal ball outcome look like? Uh, you can answer whether for business, personal, or both. Yeah, yeah. So from a business perspective, I'd like to see Auditoria have a, um, you know, a home run of an exit, meaning you know, we've got a four-year head start on most of the companies that are starting today. And uh, you know, according to the, um, the category design toolkit or Play Bigger, you know, the first mover uh, in any given category has the opportunity to dominate and, and to take 85% of the economic rewards out of that category. So if Auditoria is, you know, first mover and we can dominate the category, we have the opportunity to, to take more than our fair share of value out of that category. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so think about Apple, you know, or, or, you know, Amazon, you know, they, they're the mm-hmm. dominant you know, players within their category. Um, and then everybody else has to fight over the last, you know, 15%. So I think I'd love to see Auditory have a great exit, whether it's through acquisition or, you know, merging with another company. Um, you know, I'm always concerned about acquisitions. I've been through a couple of them. They're normally not pleasant after a while. And, you know, what happens is that the company you work for becomes a completely different company over time. And you have to be oh, able yeah. to accept that and understand that the past is the past and, you know, the future is going to be different. But, um, yeah, I'd like to see some. Uh, I'd like to, to to help Rohit and the team carry Auditoria forward to a successful exit um, to grow, you know, as fast as we can. Uh, from a um, personal perspective, you know, my kids are in college right now, and uh, you know, love to see them start out in their careers and you know have all the, the the success and support that I had when I was their age. It's a very exciting time, you know, coming out of college in the next couple of years and being out there making your own money in your early twenties and you know having a family and you know doing all that stuff that I did um, would love to, to see them go through that stuff. Maybe not in the next five years, Craig, but maybe the next 10 years. <laughs> well, that actually segues perfectly into a question I want to ask you. If you could go back and tell yourself one thing early on in your career, maybe you'll tell this to your kids when they're going into the workforce after college, but uh, what would be the one bit of advice you would give yourself if you could go back earlier in your career? What would you say? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say if something doesn't feel right, like make the change um, and don't, don't put up with things longer than you need to. Um, you know, I, I think I, I've, I've stuck around at companies um, too long and I've also left too soon, but uh, the companies I've stuck around too long, you know, I, I, every time I look at those, I say, why did I stick around that, at that company? Why, why did I, why those last six months were brutal or the last three months were horrible. Why did I, why did I put up with that? And it's that, that whole analogy of, you know, uh, boiling a frog, right? You turn it up by one degree every day and you don't pretty soon, you know, you don't notice that the frog's boiling, you know? Um, and that's, that's in some ways, Craig, we're all sometimes feeling like boiled frogs. Cause like we don't realize that the temperature is going up every single day until it becomes really unbearable. So for my own sanity and my own stress level, I would go back in a time machine um, to tell myself, you know, be aware of your surroundings and, if something doesn't feel right, you know, find someplace else to be that makes you happy. The other thing is um, max out your 401k at every company. <laughs> wow, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 
I love it. All right, what uh, what's a favorite book that's impacted your career and why? Could be a piece of content too, doesn't it? Could yeah, be a favorite book. You know, a lot of the Jeffrey Moore books, like you know, Across the Chasm, Inside the Tornado, those were like mm-hmm. great for um, you know just helping people understand that if you're going to try to change people's mindsets, I know those are those are like you know kind of classics these days. That's you know they're they've been rewritten a couple of times because some of the companies went out of business, but. Um, yeah, like those, those Jeffrey Moore books were probably the ones that were like most fundamental in helping me get my arms around, um, you know, working in a startup. Also, I mentioned Play Bigger. That's the, the you know, the Category Pirates group. You know, they've done a, a number of books and, you know, any, any, any books that have to do with like, how does a company transform an existing um, mm. problem into like something new, whether it's Netflix coming up with streaming video or Uber revolutionizing like taxi transport or, you know, any, or Alexa, I, well, I said her name, I shouldn't have said it, but you know, my home device, uh, uh, you know, being able to do things that, that transform uh, our, our home automation, you know? So I think any book that has to do with those types of transformational um, stories are interesting for me. It well, this li- it lines up perfectly with your superpower and the out of the box way of. I mean, you're you're a change maker, you're a disruptor, you're a person that likes to create things that have never been created before, and you're a creator. That's why you have iterated so much in your career, and in this role, um, it's just because you're wanting to constantly reinvent yourself and and push new things forward. So it's super inspiring. Um, what about your favorite tech tool these days? Uh, my favorite tech tool. Well, you know, um, I have many. Uh, Zoom Info is my, um, I'm a full stack, uh, full platform customer of Zoom Info, meaning I have their data. I use them for chorus. I use them for chat on our website. I use them for um, form complete, which is a kind of a cool way of when you put an email in on a form, it does a look up behind the scenes and pulls all the other information it's got about you. Uh, so Zoom Info is one of my favorite. Plus Henry Shuck, the CEO uh, just sent me an email like earlier this week that they they featured my picture on Times Square. I'll have to send that to you, Craig. Um, <laughs> cool. It's fun. You know, it's their customer appreciation week. So you know, Zoom info, I guess, is at the top of my list because they 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 have my my picture on a billboard in Times Square. Uh, that's oh, a great that's one. Um, you are you are good looking, so I can see why they did that. Well, well thank you, thank you. Um, but uh, you know, I'm always on the lookout for um, new innovative ways of streamlining things and, and automating things like. There's a company called B2 Brain. B2 Brain. Uh, I'm I, I'm very well connected to the founder over there, and I was one of the early adopter customers there. What he's done is he's created some technology that scans the internet for what, what's called intent signals, mm-hmm. and helps me then uh, map those to current um, pipeline opportunities, so that we can nurture and move these opportunities forward. Um, so, you know, he's thinking about problems in a very different way, very innovative guy named Sridhar. Um, so Beta Brain is another one of my favorite uh, MarTech tools. But, you know, um, uh, if you looked at my MarTech stack um, four or five years ago when I was at either uh, Sage or, or Planful, um, it looked one way. Today, my MarTech stack is very different, similar stuff, but more startup-y mm-hmm. and a little bit more innovative, new um innovative companies that I wanted to take a chance on them. And, you know, mm-hmm. I love working with small startups. So, you know, I've got a lot of great tech in my, in my marketing technology stack. That's awesome. Well, Nick, um, wrapping it up here, what final thoughts would you like to leave our listeners with? 
I guess the final thought, if I want to kind of reflect on my journey, is that um, you may set out on the road to do something and, and head one place. And that, you know, personally for me, I was glad that I was able to be open to the other roads that I could possibly take. You know, I, I, I pivoted a couple of times. I found a few forks in the road and, and took a chance and went off in, in a direction. And largely those have been very beneficial for me and I'm glad I did it. So um, nobody has their whole career mapped out. And if you do, you're going to be disappointed. But um, I guess just, you know, roll with things, be flexible, um, learn every day. Um, be kind to the people you work with and, uh, you know, focus on, on helping each other succeed. I love it. So Nick, how can people contact you and find out more about what you do? Yeah, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, you know, so I'm Nick Ezzo. I'm out there on LinkedIn on, on Twitter or X, um, you know, at sign Nick A. Ezzo. So you can find me on, on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, my personal email address is nick at ezo.net. So feel free to send, drop me a line through email if you wish. But, um, you know, otherwise, yeah, I, I won't give you my phone number because I don't answer my <laughs> And these days that's not going to be smart. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, well, listen, yeah. um, I, I, I so appreciate you coming on the show. Um, you're, you're one of my favorite marketing people that I've ever placed and, uh, watching what you've done has been thrilling and exciting. I, I love especially the recent changes you guys made and some of the realizations that you both had. And um, I know that now is now is the time to get after it. And uh, I'm super excited to see uh, what the future holds as you guys continue to grow this thing. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure to speak with you, Craig. I'm looking forward to the podcast. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Bear Hug Experience. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please give us a like, click, follow, or subscribe. We appreciate you taking a moment to give us a quick rating and a written review so we can continue to expand our reach and inspire the next generation of leaders to help make this world a better place. You can also contribute to the conversation around this specific episode by using the comments section of whatever platform you're on. And last but not least, if you have direct feedback, a question, or a guest you'd like to suggest that we have on the show, please shoot us an email at podcast at bearhugrecruiting.com or visit bearhugrecruiting.com forward slash podcast. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to having you join us again on another episode of the Bear Hug Experience. Whoa.